pace, and you might want to help them, encourage them along the way as folks come in. This is our opportunity to sing of Christ today and to certainly worship him. I have a reading for you that uh, really interests me. It, it, it kind of set the tone for our singing as we begin. And if you don't, you should have a song sheet, by the way, on the pew. We'll go to that for our pre-worship singing. But I was struck by a preacher back in the 70s by the name of S.M. Lockridge. That's Shadrach Meshach Lockridge, a Baptist preacher from California. Now, when he preached, he had a certain poetic way of preaching and with great passion. And so I'm not going to replicate what he did. But I think, I, I think uh, part of his sermon for Resurrection Sunday might be helpful to remind us of what today is. He began this way. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is sleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. And they don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know Sunday is coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday is the coming. It's Friday. The world is winning. People are sinning. And evil is grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They, they nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know that it's only Friday Sunday is a coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. All hope is lost. Death is won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sundays are coming. Today is Sunday. Hallelujah, Christ the Lord 
has risen today. Let us sing out hallelujah to the King. Happy Resurrection Day. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday and every day as a Christian. It makes us think of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, says there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned. We are, our penalty has been paid. We're not guilty. And so we can sing out today and focus on the redemptive atoning work of Christ. So take your uh, song sheets, and we're going to sing right through all these four songs, uh, and starting with Christ the Lord is risen today. You can remain seated.
live. We'll sing it through twice. a redeemer Jesus God's own son
verse of Amazing Grace. And we'll conclude from there.
chapter concerning the resurrection. We're going to do four readings to encompass the entire chapter today. If you want to read along in the various times in which we read, you can find it beginning in your Pew Bible on 961. We say that so that you would have the same translation as we do. We're reading from the ESV. 961, if you want to mark that and keep that, we'll be doing a total of four readings. And what you're going to hear about, of course, is the gospel. You're going to hear about the resurrection and some details of what a resurrection body is like. And then finally, at the very end, Jerry will give us a charge from the scripture. Then what is the result and the meaning of it? So let's look to God's word. First Corinthians chapter 15. 
Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want to give you a moment as you hear the words of Christ to prepare your heart to respond, to hear what and heed what Christ would say to the church today. I'll give you a moment privately to prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately on this resurrection day. Let us pray. O Father, it is by your grace and grace alone that we gather indeed this day. We have gathered today to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm thankful that we know Christ, that we have heard Christ preached, and you had worked in our heart to cause us then to respond in repentance and faith. We believe And we're thankful for that belief. I pray, Father, that our belief and faith would be increased. That we would redound in a a greater way in which we stand courageous in the days to come in particular. I pray, Lord, that for these little ones who will sing Hosanna, praises, hallelujah, and all that will come from them. I pray, Father, that you would produce a great truth in their heart that would be seated deeply, in which one day all of them would truly respond in repentance and faith. I pray that you would keep them all, keep them, sanctify them, make them holy. I pray, Father, that they will be able to stand on a firm foundation which we have laid here for them. We have 
taught them your great truths, and we believe them. We pray, and we sing, and we read your word, and we believe your word, and we stand on your word. And Father, though the skies may seem dark at times, may we see your smiling face of providence, even in the most difficult times. And ultimately, might we believe that truly you are with us to the end of the age. And may our hearts be quickened by the thought of your soon return. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
work that's been put into them. What a blessing. Let's all stand and turn in our hymn books to number 260. It's our turn to sing again. And we'll sing Lamb of Glory, 260. Turn to 273, 273, Christ arose, Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified, is risen, Mark 16, 6.
We continue our reading of 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive." But each of us in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all." Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, thy word is truth. We thank you for the truth that you have given. We thank you especially for the truth that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has indeed risen from the dead and is at the right hand of God and that he will come, the first fruits of salvation, and we to follow according to the promise of your word. We thank you for this day of worship. We pray that you continue to superintend our worship. Bless Brother Wayne as he shares the word of truth with us. May the Holy Spirit drive into our hearts the truth of the Word of God. We thank you also for those who have given offering today. We pray that you bless it for your use 
in our church, in our community. I pray these things in Christ's name and for his name's sake. Amen. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. 
it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven.
lives within your heart as well. I was going to say that I was going to have two sermons today. One is from 1 Corinthians, which you've gotten in your reading, and you'll get the final charge in a minute from Jerry. Okay, maybe a couple hours, Jerry, sorry. But I've also been blessed by all the singing and the people that participated from the children to the ladies, and also to you as well. It's been a glorious time to be able to worship Christ together with you and to focus on that. I thought what I would do is just walk through this narrative in Matthew, a little different, just to focus on the details of this particular day. Matthew chapter 28, if you want to follow along, I'll just kind of walk through some of this text. I'll read it and walk through it. If you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 28. And Christ does live with us. This resurrected Christ is with us until the end of the age, and that's how this passage is going to culminate and what we need to take away today for sure. We call this Easter, or I like to refer to it as Resurrection Sunday. Nearly 2,000 years ago, this Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Jews calculated it, in April... Somewhere around A.D. 33, the most significant event in human history occurred. And I remember when I first came to Christ, I'd like to listen to preachers on the radio. And I remember one, a pretty famous, good gospel preaching preacher. But even at that time, he made a statement that during this period of time that really didn't quite sound right with me. He said that if Christ didn't actually rise, then he liked all the benefits of being a Christian and the good things that would come about. It would be worthwhile. But from our reading in 1 Corinthians, I hope you understand that is not actually the case. Because if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then what you believe is worthless. He calls it futile because you would still otherwise be in your sin. That's the problem. He didn't come just to give us a little better life, our best life now, just to fix things up between relationships and marriages and people and whatever circumstance you might want to be in. It it, it wasn't to, to resolve the temporal experiences and troubles that we go through. It is to deal with our sin. And the fact that he raised from the dead demonstrates that those that are in Christ will also conquer death and have victory in him. If you don't believe in Christ today, can I tell you, you are to be pitied no matter what you believe. No matter what condition you might be in and find yourself in. Because hope in this life is just fleeting. Christ has raised He raised from the dead, as Gordon read, first fruits from those who have fallen asleep. And I love the way that expression is for those that have died in Christ are described as those who have fallen asleep. I love preaching a funeral at this very point and even bring up passages from 1 Corinthians 15 and where I remind those that gather around the graveside that this body we put into the ground is just asleep. If you're in Christ, you will raise to newness of life eternally. 
this certainty of Christ's resurrection, this historical fact in which we're addressing today, it really impacts all of humanity. And so to get a picture of it, we can find it in all of the Gospels. It's that important. But our focus today will just be walking through this narrative in Matthew 28, so let me read it for you. Here's a historical account of what happened on this day. Now after the Sabbath, that would be Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's today, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. He is going before you to Galilee. And there you'll see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And he ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they come up and took a hold of his feet and, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, <coughs> Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And they assembled with the elders and taken counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they were directed. And his story has spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us pray. O Father, I pray that you would grant us wisdom as we look at your word, recount this historical event, this great event in human history where Christ truly has risen from the dead, which really changes everything and makes our faith true and not futile. I pray that we will hear and heed the word of Christ indeed this day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a narrative, so we're going to kind of walk through the story, if you will. Not as much didactic teaching here, but I do want to 
highlight a few things, and I'll emphasize them along the way if I can get through this before your Easter lunch. And I want to note four things in particular. One is just, as we read through here, the, the concern that these women had initially, and then the very compassion of God that's seen in this story. The command, and really commands, given to those involved. And then finally, it culminates with this great commission that's given by Jesus Christ himself. These things revolve around this very day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's follow along in the text and notice verse 1. It puts the setting there that this is after the Sabbath. It, it, it describes this particular day and it, it mentions it, of course. It is the dawn of, note, the first day of the week after the Sabbath. That's how they would have counted, by the way. They counted days in relationship to the Sabbath day, which is our Saturday. It's the last day of the week, Sabbath. Now, if you remember from reading the book of Genesis, when God created the heavens and earth, he signified the last day as a day of rest, the seventh day, a Sabbath day. In creation, it reflects his creative order. He speaks and works in the six, and on the seventh, he rests. By the way, that influences our very calendar that we have today. However, under the Mosaic covenant and law, there was then instituted the Sabbath law. The Mosaic law commanded God's people to set aside a particular day of worship in which they would worship God and rest from their work and do that on Sabbath, which is Saturday. They follow that prescription and still do so today. It points to a day of worship. We worship however, on a different day, the first day of the week. And hopefully, you, it will dawn on you of why we worship not on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day. John, in the book of Revelation, describes this very early on, how everything had changed in their order of worship. For John, in his old age, writing the final book of the Holy Scriptures, a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. He, he says in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And that's how early they would describe this particular day, the first day of the week. It had a unique description to it. Jesus died on Friday he was removed from the cross and buried right away so that the Jews could observe the Sabbath. With the way they reckoned time, it, it would have been sundown sun to sunset as a day. And so here it, it, um, uh, it, 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 uh, it went from sundown to sundown, should I say. any case, so they would wanted to observe the Sabbath, so they had to remove him from the cross and, and put him away quickly and bury him because they wouldn't be able to do any work on the Sabbath. That's how they reckoned time. So they didn't have chance to give Jesus Christ a proper burial. So they decided to get the job done on first light 
And that's why it says here in our text, after the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day. This changes everything. A new day of worship begins. This would be a momentous change in how God's people would worship. No longer from their tradition, as Jesus Christ fulfills all righteousness required by the Old Testament covenant. No longer Saturday, but with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now Sunday, the Lord's Day. Notice also verse 1 of chapter 28, who went there on this day, the first day of week, and why we worship on Sunday, today, the Lord's Day. It says there were many, there was Mary and Magdalene, and another Mary went to see the tomb. There are a lot of Marys. It was a common name. The other Mary was most likely the mother of James and Joseph. You can find it also in in the previous chapter, in verse 55 and 56. It says there were also many women there. One of the ways in which uh, a gospel narrative is put across, they're not trying to give you every single detail along the way, nor do they always put it in a specific chronological order. This is why it's helpful to have all the Gospels to have a different perspective. We're going to get into the angel in a bit, and and one Gospel says two, the other says one. Well, if there's two, there's certainly one, (laughs) you see. It's a very easy answer. they're, They're not writing the way our Western mind would be where they're going to identify absolutely everything like a, some sort of um, historical handbook. They, they had a theme and an emphasis in which they were pointing out and noting that. In any case, the, but what you should note there, even though Matthew here identifies in, in verse 1 of 28, he says that, talks about Mary Magdalene and Mary. They were there, but there's also other women who came along, a lot of them came along, and some of them were actually identified. Women, by the way, were there really first at this this tomb, this burial, and they were also at the foot of the cross, if you remember. We can learn a lot from women. One thing is the courage that they would have, the character. I mean, courage, they just killed Jesus, and, and, and they can't Leave him. Great courage, great character, great compassion, and great care. Lesson we need to to know now, of course, to value the virtue of womanhood in our day, which is being attempted to be erased. It's no surprise that they would go back then to the tomb. But one other aspect, not only because of, their, of, of who they are and their character, but also this statement alone, right by itself, helps to verify the historicity of this account, you understand? Because one thing they would have done in how they wrote at that period of time, they would have done two things. One, they wouldn't write much about women and what they do because this uh, group uh, of, of people at this time, they, they wouldn't have really respected them as an eyewitness. They couldn't testify in a court of law. And so, what does it matter if the women were there and, and see? So why even identify them? 
they're selective on who they actually identify. They don't identify everybody. But the women, they do. This helps to verify the historicity of this account. You know why? Because that's actually what happened. (laughs) That's all they had to choose from was a lot of women who actually came first. They came to the tomb to finish their work. They weren't able to properly prepare Jesus' body. They had to take him down off the cross quickly. Sabbath was coming. They couldn't do any work on Sabbath. So they prepared to come and care compassionately for him, respectfully, and they were going to do it on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. They were coming to anoint his body. You can find that in Mark 16, 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. But they must not have known as they went on their way, which is understandable. No news broadcasts or internet or any kind of way to hear. They didn't know what had already transpired during that Sabbath day. You can find it back in Matthew chapter 27, the previous chapter, about in verse 62. The next day, the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While you're still alive, after three days I'll rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go, steal away, and tell his people he has risen from the dead. By the way, they knew what Jesus had proclaimed. They weren't ignorant of it, are they? Even here, these pagan folks and these religious rebels, they knew what Jesus had taught. And so they wanted to be doubly sure that nothing went on. And so they go to Pilate and make this request. And Pilate tells them, you can have a guard of Soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. They probably had their own guard there as well, the Jewish temple guard. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. They're going to prepare his body, however, these women. And I don't blame them for not realizing this is the third day to the significance of what it would be. Because we know this after the fact, right? But but they're right there in the midst of it. They actually see Jesus beaten to a bloody pulp. They see him hanging on a cross by professional killers. They see him taken down and they witness that he is actually really dead. They try to do some quick gathering of anointing. They wrap him up a bit and shuffle him off really quickly, but they know he's really dead. But Jesus had been telling them this, that he is going to rise from the dead. And in fact, if you're in your Gospel of Matthew, we don't have to go far, all of the accounts have it, but Jump back to chapter 16. This isn't a one-time lesson. It's a lesson that is well-known. 
even the Pharisees and even the, uh, the, um, the secular leaders knew what Jesus had said. And here's a demonstration of it, verse 21 from chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must do what? He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. Now, thus far, what has happened? He went to Jerusalem. That was last week. He suffered many things. That was the whole week long of his passion. And then he was killed on Friday. All of that happened. He taught them that continually. This is what must happen. And But he also says, do you notice here in verse 21? He says, on the third day, be raised. Okay. All that he said occurred, and this is the last thing he said, on the third day, be raised. Well, this is the third day. It's Sunday. And Peter's response is disciple, hearing that, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, look, I understand the sentiment of him in doing that. He loved Christ. He didn't want Christ to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. So that's his expression from just his mind, his heart, his passion. And for that, I'll, I'll recognize that. But even though his motive might have been good, his message was not. You know why? Because really, this is a rejection of what Jesus Christ has said. He said, I'm going. He said, I'm suffering. He said, I'm going to be killed. And he said, I'm going to raise from the dead. Our response should be, yes, Lord, because Jesus indeed is Lord. And look at Jesus' response to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Peter isn't Satan. It's just he's expressing the very word and mind and idea and ideology of Satan. Can I tell you this? Anything contrary to Jesus Christ is a word from the devil because he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. Believe Jesus Christ, even though it might be difficult to understand and comprehend. If he says it, it is truth, because that is all he says is truth. And I like this phrase here, Jesus Christ mentions to Peter. He says, you're being a hindrance to me. You're not helping the situation. Peter thought he was helping. He was going to fix it. You know, it's like, I don't know, a a dump truck coming down a hill or something and and full of gravel. And you're you're standing there with your hand and you're going to help keep it from hitting the intersection below. No, you're not. You're just going to get smashed. What Jesus says is absolute truth and it will absolutely happen all the time. He says, you're hindered. And here he explains what it is. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. 
He's expressing the mind of man. And this is a big problem. By the way, it is a problem with each of us to varying degrees. Right? We're, we're influenced in how we think. We, we think we know. We think we understand. But the heart of man, that would be the mind, is desperately wicked. And who can know it? Well, God can. And this is why you would pray, search me, O God. Show me my thoughts. Christ knows. He taught them this, and it kind of passed over their head to some degree. In fact, you can turn there if you wish. John chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John, John 11. And this is just prior to this event in Jerusalem. This is the event in which Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He has some friends, Martha, Mary, and and Lazarus. And you can find in verse 20 of John chapter 11, Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and she, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And here's what Jesus says to her. Your brother will rise again. Now, again, we, we know the after the fact, right? We're looking backwards. We, we know exactly what he's saying. But almost put yourself in her shoes, in her understanding. Jesus says he's going to rise. Martha says to him, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. What, what she's talking about is the res, general resurrection that they t- they were taught the, the resurrection to, to life, a resurrection to death. They understood this. But this is Jesus Christ saying he's going to be risen right now. And when Jesus says something, this is God speaking. It is always true. And that's what she's not hearing. She, she's coming up with her own thoughts about what she had been taught traditionally. And so this is confusing to her. So she has to be taught the right concept of resurrection. And I think you and I would do well to learn it as well. And it's real simple. And you find that in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. That's all you need to know. I mean, if you can't figure out all this other stuff and the technical aspects of all of this, You need to know one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. This is why Paul will say simply about the gospel, as I read in the opening part of 1 Corinthians 15. We just proclaim Christ, and you believed, and so did I. I don't do any part of arm-twisting, changing your mind. You need a regenerate mind, and it is through the power of Christ. To believe that he is the resurrection and life, that's our focus. And the good news is, whoever believes in me, Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the question. 
Do you believe what? That Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Only Jesus Christ and truly Jesus Christ. And her response is a response of faith after being clarified doctrinally of what is going on and the substance of this resurrection truth we're talking about is the person of Christ. She says, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, that that would be the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate, coming into the world, God manifested in flesh. She recognized, worshipped, and responded and said, yes, I believe. And that's a question that we have to ask each one of us of our own self and our own mind. It isn't about your religious ideas, your traditions, your practices. It's simply this. It is the person, Jesus Christ. Do you believe him? Is this the consuming thought of your life that he indeed is the resurrection and the life? Well, God is a gracious and patient God. Jesus explained all of this. They still didn't quite get it, and he knows it. And he's tender with us as well. Okay? I mean, this is so obvious, but God is so gracious. And you can see that back to our text in verse 2 of chapter 28. The narrative goes on to explain these women, they're coming with great concern. That they should be coming with great expectation to see him rise from the dead as he taught. But God is compassionate towards them, even in the midst of their somewhat unbelief. And I'll show you at least three ways here. First, look at verse 2 about this earthquake that comes along. The ground shakes. It happened before. It happened, by the way, a shaking at the cross and now a shaking here at the tomb. God opens this tomb. Remember, it was sealed with a stone, and it was also guarded. This earthquake comes along, and this angel messenger from God, two of them at least, could be even more that we're not aware of. Nevertheless, they open the stone physically. They disable the guards, open the stone, and they just sit on it. Waiting. Waiting for what? The women to show up. This earthquake, this opening of the tomb, by the way, it wasn't so that Jesus could get out. He doesn't need the stone rolled away. He doesn't need to disable the guards. I I love the night he was betrayed. Remember the guards, they all came up to him, thousand people with sticks and swords and whatever. And John records for us that part where they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am, and they all fall over. We're talking about God incarnate here. He doesn't need this. This isn't done for him. In our reading, as Isaac read here about a body, by the way, so you can go back and understand that, in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, it talks about a resurrected body, by the way, It's sown as a natural body and raised as a spiritual body. A spiritual body, that's almost 
two things together that don't go together, is it? This is what eternity will be like. We understand that with Jesus Christ and how he moved about in a resurrected, or we would call it a glorified body. It has a physical aspect to it. You can get the details, greater details, should I say, in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're reading, our text. But ultimately, it is a body that can live in both the material world and the immaterial world. It has a correspondence to what we know here, but yet a difference. And he uses the analogy in 1 Corinthians 15, like a seed of corn that's planted in the ground. It comes out different, doesn't it? Big, stock, lots of ears on it, and plenty of kernels. It comes out better, <laughs> right? One little seed comes out better. That's the point of that analogy, that it corresponds, but there is a difference. And so here, Jesus Christ doesn't need this, this stone to be rolled away, doesn't need the guards to be disabled. This tomb, by the way, in, in Palestine, it was customary for them to have some sort of covering over the opening. If you don't understand what this tomb is like, essentially, it is a tomb that is, think of it like a cave. Okay? And inside the cave, it would be a place for a lot of people to be buried. And what they would typically do is have a ledge. And on that ledge, you would put the body that was buried. And after a period of time, that body would decay and be nothing but a, some bones and some ashes. In time, they would reopen that tomb, go into that ledge, gather up the fragments and put them in a little box. They call it an ossuary box. And then take the box and put it in the back of the room. And so the tomb would be filled with all kinds of boxes. Jesus' tomb was empty at the beginning and at the end. This was a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea. It was done on purpose because you, 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 there was nothing in there but Jesus Christ alone. Yeah, that symbolizes something, doesn't it? He was buried alone. But beyond that, too, there was a superstition in that day, and I think it's helped to spell that, that if you were buried with some prophet, that perhaps something magical might happen, and, and perhaps you, you, you might have, get some sort of life and walk out. You know how people have all these kinds of crazy stories about ghost stories and so forth in their own mind and imagination. All of that is dispelled because this is an empty tomb. It was empty from the beginning. It was a tomb built by a rich man for him and prepared for this particular day for Christ, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. There was one body in the tomb. It was Jesus Christ. When the tomb was opened, he was gone. His body didn't regain natural life, and it didn't occur through some mystical means of some other prophet's bones that were nearby. Peter would tell us in his preaching in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection, and I'll read it for you, 224, real simple, God raised him up. 
God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible then for Jesus not to rise from the dead? The psalmist already explains that. Psalm 16.10 You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You understand it couldn't happen. That's the miracle of God in taking on human flesh and dying and being buried because he will rise, because the Holy One will not see corruption. It is not possible for him not to rise from the dead. You understand that? I mean, that's why we affirm and believe. And God is so gracious here to open this up for these women then to see indeed this truth fulfilled in the very eyes the Holy One has not seen corruption. There's none there. The ground shakes. Angel descends. It disables the guards. Back to verse 3 of chapter 28. They see an angel, by the way. He looks like lightning. His clothing is white as snow. They're just trying to describe it. It would be awesome and awful at the same time. It would be frightening. Look at verse 4. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead man. Of course they did. And let me tell you this. If you ever actually saw a holy angel because you're not holy in, in that sense, uh, practically, you are positionally in Christ, but not practically in this life, you would also fall over like a dead man. Because it is so foreign to you to see the perfection on display. And they are unable to see this, and the only way they can describe it is pure light, as opposed to what? Darkness. A metaphor used a lot in Scripture to speak of holiness. This this is the reaction of trained soldiers of Rome. They can't stand before the presence of even a single holy angel. Beloved, can I warn you this? What could, could you imagine standing before a holy God? If you're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you're going to fall over like a dead man. It's just what will happen. The angel back in verse 5, then one of them speaks, says, don't be afraid. And that's great comfort that, again, God provides through this messenger. Don't, don't, don't be fearful. They were, naturally so, but he provides them comfort and then explains to them that they, he understands they're looking for Jesus who was crucified. By the way, the guards, they don't get any comfort. They're frightened, and they don't have any comfort because they're not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you should be fearful as well. This, this comfort is not universally spread like peanut butter on a sandwich. It is more specific. And we'll look at, I think, in his resurrection too, if I get to that part, how his appearances are specific as well. God has everything under control. He's very compassionate and he provides comfort to his people even in the midst of their struggle 
And so they get a command then that is given, and that's verses 6 through 7. Notice the command that angel gives. He reminds them Christ is risen. Christ has already said he would. It isn't possible for him not to rise. So he, they even say, go physically, look, look where it was, look at that ledge. There's nothing on it, no body. Then go quickly and then tell, verse 7, his disciples that he has risen from the dead and tell them to go to Galilee. They're in, Jer- they're in Jerusalem, Galilee is north, three days journey. He's going to see you there. They're going to meet back in Galilee. This is what Christ has already said. The message of his resurrection is specific, if you notice here from the text. Who are they going to tell? They're, They're in Jerusalem, but don't go running through the city and tell them. Go back to who? The disciples and say, hey, let's all meet in Galilee and we're going to see the risen Christ. Now, I hope this might help your apologetics at this point. It helps mine. There are plenty of evidences of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Plenty. And we could spend all day on that. And they're worthy of considering and looking at. But I want to assure you one thing. If they walk through these women, if they were charged by this angel to walk through Jerusalem and make that proclamation that Jesus is risen from the dead, come, look at the tomb, uh, look at the ledge that he was on, he's gone. You know what would happen? Unbelief. Because they didn't believe to begin with. And don't believe me, believe Jesus Christ who teaches them, I'll quote Luke 16.31 for you, where here, someone thinks, oh, I know a great idea. Bring somebody back from death and have them preach the gospel. And Jesus says in Luke 16, 31, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, that right there is Moses and the prophets. That's it. God's word. If they won't hear that, that's what you proclaim, not your ideas and ideology, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is Jesus Christ saying that. Can I tell you this? Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Go see all these people out here who could care less today. I don't want to get people to come up to fill up some sort of sanctuary. That isn't our goal. I feel great pity for them. Because if they have hope only in this life, they should be pitied. Christ is risen from the dead. Believe in Christ. It's based on faith, not sight. So we just simply preach Christ. And people come to faith by God's grace in verse 8, it, I think that's an interesting thing as well. Here, their women are given this command and to go to Galilee, to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. She, they're gathering them up, and they're on their way. It's, as I mentioned, it's a three-day journey. By, they're walking. So it's going to take a, a time to do that. Have you ever walked for three days? I haven't, but I know people who have. <laughs> it's hard. It takes a long time. It takes three days. But anyway... Matthew 28, verse 8, 
they're leaving with great joy. And they, they, they're running to tell his disciples. And I'm sure they slow down after a while because that's a long journey. And verse 9, and behold, here, here's this interjection that's thrown in here. Again, showing this compassion of Christ to reaffirm. He meets them and he says, greetings. And their response, they came up to him and worshiped him. And then Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. That made that journey a little bit easier, didn't it? Can you imagine? They got to see the risen Christ on the way. There's another group mentioned in our text back in verse 11, and that's the guards, and they have a totally different perspective, don't they? They know something's happened. Something happened to them, verse 11. So they're going to go tell the chief priest what's going on. Somehow they were knocked out cold. There was this earthquake. The, the, the tomb that was sealed, it's now open. And so they're going to go tell them, hey, hey, all, something has happened. But, but notice the response of the, of the religious elders and the, as they take counsel together. How are we going to get through this? It, it, it's amazing how, how the corruption of sin is in the mind of men. Here they have a, a, a proclamation of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do. And it's done and it's completed. And their response is, hmm, how can we figure out a way to twist what is being said? How can we twist what has actually happened? So they tell him, verse 13, they bribe him, give him money, and tell them to tell the people his disciples came at night and stole the body away while they were asleep. How foolish, really? The, the, the disciples then are going to go disable the, the Roman guard and the temple guard that were there and unseal that stone and push it away and, and knock them all out. And it, it, Obviously, this is nonsense, but people would rather believe nonsense than truth. They'd rather believe a lie than the very truth of Christ. Go out and preach Christ and see what happens. Most of the people are going to absolutely reject what you have to say. That isn't a new phenomena. Again, it shows the deceitful heart of man. Give all the facts you want to an atheist. They're blind. They're deaf. They can't see. They can't hear, even though they can see and they can hear. The, the, it, there has to be a supernatural work of God's grace in the heart. So what do you do? Proclaim Christ. You pray and see God's grace work in their heart. Well, I'll finish this up the way Christ does. He's going to meet all of them in Galilee. He directs them to meet him, verse 16, and, and they do. They gather together to wait for Jesus, and in verse 17, he appears. And again, Matthew doesn't explain this in detail, but verse 17, notice they see him, they worship him, uh, but some doubted. 
He may be referring to some that are still in a fog about this, okay? That, that's a sense of, of, of doubt. Really? This is really the risen Christ? It, it isn't just his disciples there. There are more, and you can find that from 1 Corinthians 15. That he, he had appeared to, to many. This is probably the biggest appearance that he had. Some doubted. There were more than just his inner circle. There may be some who were there with them, but who were really not in Christ, who were not really truly believers. Matthew doesn't expound on that. They gather, however, to worship the risen Christ, which, by the way, that's why we, from that point forward, continue to do that on this day. We gather together ostensibly to do what? To worship Christ, to hear his word to read his word, to sing his word, to pray his word, to worship him. Some doubted. The doubt was brought about in some cases, we know Thomas, because of his absence in this event. And people that like to quip then that you shouldn't miss church because (laughs) something good might happen. And I think it's a good idea. But nevertheless, Thomas wasn't there at the first appearing. John records that in his gospel. And in verse 28, I'll read it for you in John 20. Thomas's response when he sees Christ, when, when he focuses on Christ, his response is one of the greatest statements concerning the, the deity of, of Jesus Christ when he says, my Lord and my God. And by the way, beloved, that's who Jesus Christ is. He isn't a figment of anybody's imagination. He isn't an idol from somebody's heart. He is God. And he is Lord. And it is my prayer that he, is, he would be your Lord and your God as well. Jesus even said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. How does that come about? By faith. A supernatural work of God's grace. I'll finish with this too, this um, charge that he gives. We call it the commission in verse 18. Notice this then. He gathers them together. They worship him. And he emphasizes his authority. All authority, verse 18, is given in heaven and earth. That is, he has demonstrated that he has earned it, if you will. All authority has been given to Christ. This is why we worship Christ and Christ alone. And based on his command here, his charge, in verse 19, one that we're familiar with, he says, go, make other disciples, if you will, of all nations, that is, of every people group. Ethne is the word. And do what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The baptism is, yes, a physical representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is more than that. Is baptizing means uniting together as God's people. And as you do, you, you do what? Then you, you teach them all things. What all, what all things are we to teach? Teach them what Christ has taught us. That is right here. And you know what his promise is then? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, verse 20. Where's Christ at now? You say, well, I I serve a risen Savior, and I hope you do. 
So where is Christ now? You thought he sat down on the majesty on high and, and ruling there. Well, he just explained it here prior. If you look back at the text here, it says to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God. And Jesus Christ has demonstrated this God is triune. And so when Jesus promises to then send the Holy Spirit who will dwell in the life of all believers, it is God with us. This fulfills the statement that the angel made. You can look it up later. Matthew 1.21, I think, where it says, You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God. And you can call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God is with us today. Christ is with us today. He has sent the Holy Spirit then to empower the disciples. We will continue our reading in days to come in the book of Acts and see how that has empowered them to service and has uh, um, given them the assurance of the salvation through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Today, I hope you've seen this this concern that these ladies had as they came to the tomb. And can I extrapolate and just say you have no concern that isn't addressed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We also see the compassion that God has given them. We experience the greatest compassion that God has given to us in the redemption of Jesus Christ and the life that we can now live through a risen Christ. The command, well, the command is to obey whatever he says. And certainly a commission to teach this to others and trust that he is with us even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would grant to us true faith in Christ. May we indeed behold him and him alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment. We, we like to take a moment just to think on these things. So take time now. Respond directly to Christ in any way he has spoken to you. finished with this final charge from 1 Corinthians 15 as Jerry reads this for us. Starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not all asleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must, be put, uh, must put on the imperishable, 
and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give thanks. Gracious Father, we're indeed so thankful for the rising of Christ who's conquered death, who death could not conquer him, had no power over him, and the grave had no ability to hold him. Father, therefore, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, <clears throat> that in the Lord you labor, and it is not in vain. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.